Good morning. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come here and share your word. I thank you, Lord, for the uh, things that you've shown me through the week. I thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you're such a good God and a faithful God in so many ways and that we might learn to, to show love to you the way you want us to. And help us all to hear, and for those that aren't here, Lord, help them, Lord, to, uh, to be touched by your spirit where they are. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to look at a fascinating and well-known passage in Deuteronomy 6. Um, for those of you who have taken my Sunday school classes or have read the Elder's Corner, you know I'm a lot more of a teacher than a preacher. And you know that I love to dig into the Old Testament, probably because of my Jewish heritage. And for those of you who have never seen me in a suit, which is everybody except my family, don't get used to it. <laughs> I hope we have as much fun today as, as, you know, as I did getting ready for this. And so let's go to Deuteronomy 6, and we'll start reading in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk in the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. To the Jews, this is probably the most important passage in the Bible. Jewish families recite this twice a day in the morning and the evening. Uh, it's used in many of the prescribed prayers that they pray at holidays and for events and for circumstances in their lives. This is the first passage that is taught to the children. It's the first passage they learn when they learn to talk. And it's the one that devout Jews hope is their last word when they breathe out their last breath. It functions both as a Jewish pledge of allegiance and as a hymn of praise. But it's also one of the most important verses in the New Testament, too. We see Jesus quoting parts of it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those who heard it would have understood that when he quoted parts of it, he included the entire idea. In Matthew 22, for instance, Jesus was being tested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees when a lawyer asked him, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And this is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Mark describes the same event in Mark 12, but quotes Jesus as saying about the commandments that there are no other commandments greater than these. And just before the story of the, great, of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, Luke records this conversation between a lawyer and Jesus. And he says, behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. 
Now, just as an aside, we'll get to later, but notice the wording is a little bit different in the way there's, there's the, the three things that were listed in Deuteronomy and four things here. That'll become apparent why that is in a little bit. Now, the apostles understood the importance of this scripture, and we can see its influence in the doctrines that uh, in Paul's letters to the Galatians, the Ephesians, and Romans, it's in James, and it's even alluded to in Revelation. These verses are, what's, are at the beginning of what is known as the Shema. In fact, the word Shema comes from the first word in the verse, hear. But the word means much more than simply to listen to something. In Hebrew, the word Shema means to pay attention to what's being said and do something about it and act upon it. Because hearing incorporates action. It includes the response to the hearing. In this case, the response is to do the command that comes next, which is to love God. The Israelites are to hear and then do and then to teach others to do it too. On its face, this passage seems pretty simple and straightforward, but in reality, like many things related to God, it has depths of meaning that one can spend a whole lifetime trying to learn. But to really understand the passage, you have to see it through Jewish eyes, because our English translations are good, but sometimes they don't quite convey the way that the Jews would have heard it. You see, each one of us has filters through which we perceive everything. Filters based on our own experiences and teaching, our culture, our personalities, and even the limitations of our language. It's kind of like those commercials that you see on TV for those fancy sunglasses. You know, you can look at a scene with, with your eyes and you see, you know, it looks pretty nice. But then you put on these sunglasses and all of a sudden the colors pop out and you see things that you never saw before. Nothing has changed with the scenery. It's just your filter has changed. And, you know, we're just seeing it through a different filter. Now, my daughter-in-law, who's fluent in six or seven languages and has a master's degree in a couple of them, told me that when you read the Bible in different languages, you definitely see things differently since the filters are so different. She gave me this example. In Mark, Romans, and Galatians, there's an Aramaic word that's used that we're all pretty familiar with, which is that we can call God Abba, Father, right? Well, to us, in English, we translate that as the word daddy. But in Czech, for instance, they use a word that's the most formal description that a, a child can use in an intimate way with their father. Something equivalent to our word sir. Because it would be totally inappropriate, you know, to talk about him in some other way. But to them, that is an intimate way of talking to the father. But it has an effect probably on their prayer life because, you know, there's not that familiarity that we talk about by using the word daddy. But that's what filters do. They make changes like that, subtle changes in the way you approach things. So let's try to see this using the filter of the Jews. To do this, we need to realize that there are fundamental differences between the way we think and the way we use words and the ways the Jews do at least when this was written. For instance, in English, like in Greek, nouns describe what things are. But in Hebrew, nouns are used to describe what things do, what they're like. 
you know nouns like there's a truck you know that let me take you on a little rabbit trail to show you what i mean while it's not this word isn't in the passage that we're looking at the hebrew word uh that sounds something like ayil is derived from the idea of an ox and a shepherd's crook and it stands for anything or anything of strong authority like a powerful old ox but that word also is translated as a mighty oak tree, a stag, a ram, or the chief or a strong leader of a tribe. It even talks about the lintels or the side posts of a door or the columns that hold up a building. It's all the same word because it tells, it describes the characteristics that are the same, characteristics of strength. It's describing what a thing does not just what it is. Now, ancient Hebrew is, is difficult to translate into English for some technical reasons, too. If you saw the old scrolls, you'll notice that they're written all with, uh, without vowels, and all the letters are just smashed together. And in order to translate it, you have to go through and pick out, okay, which, where are the words, which, which letters make, and which vowels do we need to put in to get the right sense? And if the translators get it wrong, it could change the entire idea of the verse. So it it's, takes a lot of work to do that uh, and to get it right. And sometimes you'll see differences between translations because they co- the translators come up with different ideas. Now, it doesn't make any big changes, but, but it's, it's interesting nevertheless. Another difficulty is Hebrew grammar. For instance, in Hebrew, you can say something was or will be, but there just is no word for is. Um, They simply would place two words together, and the is between them would be assumed. And this can sometimes create some problems, because you might not know exactly where to put that word is. For instance, in verse 4 of our passage, the Hebrew literally says, Lord our God, Lord one. Now, as you can see, we've got five words. And depending on where you put the word is, you can end up with several different sentences. For instance, number one, the Lord our God is one Lord. Number two, the Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. Or number three, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the meaning between these options isn't really drastically different, but each one has a different emphasis is the point of this passage that the Lord God is one and not many, and that's kind of what's involved in number one and number three? Or is the emphasis on the fact that the Lord is our God, number two? Does the Shema claim that Israel's God is one being? Or is it highlighting that the Lord alone is Israel's God and not any other? Part of the problem is with the word one. The word one is about as ambiguous in Hebrew as it is in English. Echad is not the normal word that somebody would use to describe a single thing, but it's often used that way. It's also can be used to describe a bunch of similar things that are brought together like a cluster of grapes. That's a, that would be called a, a compound unity. So other places, you'll see it's a bunch of different things that are brought together into one thing, like a husband and wife who come together to be one, 
or in Ezekiel when he's describing two sticks or that represent two nations that he brings together into one thing. The word can also be used to describe the number one, the idea of first. It can even describe something that's unique, like one and only. Now this has led to a variety of interpretations about what it means when it says that God is one God. Some say the verse is simply making the point that Israel is, is um, monotheistic, meaning serving a single God instead of the many gods of the nations around them. Others say that it means that God can't be divided into multiple parts, or that he's unique among all the gods, or that one day everybody will recognize him as the one and only true God. Some point to this verse and say that it's saying that God is Israel's one and only God without making a judgment on the gods, uh, the validity of the gods on, in the nations around them. And some scholars even point to the fact that some of the cultures around them used to assign numbers to their gods so that they could keep track of which god was above every other god. You know, they give them a pecking order. And that the Israelites used this particular phraseology in this verse so that everybody knew that their god was really number one. Now the prophet Zechariah put it this way in Zechariah 14.9. He said, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. You see, God is so one that even, even his name is Echad. We can get a pretty clear idea of what Jesus thought when we look at Mark 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered and said, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there's no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So Jesus knew that there was just one God, but he also knew, as he says in John 10:30, I and the Father are one. Now, in the epistles, in, beginning, in Romans 3.29, Paul focuses on the first part of the Shema, that God is one, pointing out that God is unique and above all. He then shows that God is not just the God of Israel, but also the God of the Gentiles. And he emphasizes that unlike the other gods of the other nations around them who were territorial or national gods, the God of Israel, this God that they're talking about, was not just the God of Israel, he's God Almighty, the Most High, and the God above everything. Verse 29 says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Then in 1 Corinthians 8, he quotes part of the Shema again. 
but takes the controversial step of including Jesus in the idea of a one God. And he says, therefore, as to the offer, eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And then he adds, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now over time, this idea develops into the idea of the Trinity and the idea where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all part of the Ichad. Okay, let's go on to verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Now here's where seeing through the Jewish filter becomes really important because these words don't mean the same thing to us as they did to the Jews or to the Greeks for that matter. The first word we're going to look at is love. To the Jews, love is not, is not about emotion. It's about doing. It's about the evidence. Love isn't measured by what you feel. It's by what you do. For instance, the Jews knew that God loved them because he delivered them from Egypt, not because he promised something to them or told them how he felt. God knows we love him by our good works and our righteous living because we see that Jesus put it that way in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then in John 15, 13, he described the true measure of love, something he would demonstrate himself shortly after this, where he said that greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You see, love was doing, not feeling. That's why Jesus tells us we can love our enemies and those that persecute us. We don't have to feel it, we just have to do it. Paul explains in Romans 8, beginning in verse 9, that while we're to feel brotherly affection toward one another, We're to love by doing. This passage is a pretty comprehensive guide on how to do love toward one another and to God. It's a good idea to mark this in your Bible and go back to it over and over and over again so that you can judge how you're doing in this idea of loving God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to that which is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then here's how you do it. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony one with another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
And then when it came time to separate the sheep from the goats in Matthew 25, it wasn't the ones who felt love toward Jesus who were the sheep. It was the ones who demonstrated by that love by feeding, clothing, and caring for the least of these. Now, this is not saying that salvation is based on works, but the person who is saved is going to exhibit certain fruit in their lives. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. And they said, the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it one of, to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, loving your neighbor is loving God. It's always been a core principle of the Jews, one that permeates every part of their religious life and is enshrined in the law of Moses. For them, generously caring for the needy and the stranger is a religious obligation, just like worship, and it's the measure of a person's righteousness and their love toward God. The generous person was a righteous person, but the stingy person was not. So how do we love God? It's not by warm and cozy feelings in our heart and our soul and our might. Remember, love is a doing word. We demonstrate love in concrete ways by the things that we do. We don't just feel love, we have to do love. But sometimes uh, we misunderstand what this passage in Deuteronomy is saying because the way the verse has been translated. The English words heart, soul, and might don't convey the same meaning now as they did to the Jews when Deuteronomy was written. In Hebrew, these three words overlap and build on each other. First of all, at the time this was written, it was believed that a person's thoughts and emotions came from their heart, not their head. So this is saying that we should love God with all our thoughts and all our emotions. And to love God, and that's why you see in the, in the verses in the New Testament, they add another category of you know, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They add that mind in there because they realize it's separate from the heart. But to the Jews, all this was in the heart. And to love God with our thoughts, we have to do something. In Philippians 4, 4 through 9, Paul gives us an example of what our minds should be centered on and what happens when we do it. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, and whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, 
think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So quit worrying and fill your brain with good stuff. You know, and don't let the other stuff come in and worry about it. And you'll see throughout the whole Old New Testament, he's always saying, you know, don't worry, don't do this, don't do that. You know, don't quarrel, don't argue, don't debate, all of those kinds of things because he wants your minds filled with these good things because if your focus is on this, that allows you to love God. Next, we're to love God with all our soul. The Hebrew word for soul literally means breath. But it's really speaking about the whole of a person, from their innermost animating force to their outermost parts of their body. It's the idea of, of you're a living soul. While, while your heart incorporates what's going on inside you, um, your soul wraps around that and incorporates everything else too. It's basically that we're supposed to love God with every fiber of our being, in everything we think, everything we do, and with everything we are. That's doing love. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul says that our faith works through love. And then James, quoting part of the Shema, explains in James 2, starting in verse 18, he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then throughout the rest of his epistle, he's talking about how faith, you know, that works by love, um, requires action or else it's dead. If you're not doing love toward God and your neighbor, your faith is dead. Now, the last phrase in our verse is translated as strength or might in English. But it has nothing to do with physical power. In the, the word in, is used throughout the Hebrew text as an adverb um, that adds, intensifies the verb that it's next to. Something is usually translated as very, greatly, or much. This is the only place it's ever used as a noun. And what it would mean uh, probably a better translation would be your muchness. Now, what in the world is your muchness? Um, basically, it's what works out from your heart and your soul. You know, the, the outward things that come from those things that you're doing inside and, and with your body. I believe a, a good way to look at it, it's anything that you can put the word my in front of. Now, let me ask some questions and you'll see what I mean. We've seen what God expects me to, you know, that God expects me to love, to do love with my money and, and ask myself, am I giving all I should? Am I being generous or stingy? It's measure, of course, it's a measure of my doing love for God. How about this? Am I doing love with my time? Are the things I spend my time on showing my love toward God or my love toward myself? When I start thinking that I deserve this activity or some downtime or whatever, maybe I might be doing it for me instead of for God. Now, maybe not, but now on to some tougher ones. What about my expectations? My expectations of myself or of other people? Are they doing love toward God or myself? 
How about my attitudes or my desires, my hopes? How about my needs or my rights? I even need to do God with my relationships. I need, am I, we need to ask ourselves, am I doing love toward God with what I do with my friends, my children, my spouse? How about my neighbors? How about those on the job? Or how about my ministry? If I'm not committed to consistently and intentionally doing love toward God in these, those activities are probably drawing me away from God. Now, we know we're supposed to do love toward our enemies, and that's pretty tough. But here's the really tough one. Can you do love for God, or can I do love for God, in the midst of my circumstances and my trials and my failures? Paul learned to be content in the midst of his circumstances, no matter how tough they were, telling the Philippians in 4.11, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, we're able to do love for God through the Holy Spirit that's in us and by keeping our focus and our minds on the things that are most important. Now, I don't have time to dig into it deeply this morning, but if you want to be able to see if you're doing love correctly and all those things that I mentioned as part of our muchness, um, God's kind of given us a checklist, a couple of checklists in the Bible. Uh, in addition to Romans 9, you can take a look at 1 Corinthians 13. And if we're doing love correctly, it will look something like this, and I'm going to paraphrase. Ask yourself, in this thing that I'm doing or thinking that's part of my muchness, Am I being patient and kind? Am I being envious or boasting? Arrogant or rude? Am I being irritable or resentful? Am I rejoicing with the truth? Oh, I'm sorry. Am I rejoicing at wrongdoing? Am I rejoicing with the truth? Am I bearing all things? Believing all things? Hoping all things? And enduring all things? If I can answer each one of these correctly, I'm probably doing love. The next verse in the Shema tells us that we're supposed to continually be focusing our mind and our mouth on doing love in all of these areas we've just discussed. Here's what it says. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Well, you know, like the Jews' prayer shawl that we've all seen pictures of, with the fringe around it with all the hundreds of hand-tied knots in there that represent, each one of them represents the, uh, the commandments, the hundreds of commandments in the Bible, uh, or in the law. The Jews have also developed a variety of traditions to help them keep the Shema first and foremost, in front of their eyes. Among these were the tefillin and the mezuzah. Uh, the tefillin, or, or tefillin, or however you say it, and the is, or phylactery as we see it, and that one's easier to say, are small leather bo boxes that contain verses from the law and are attached to the forehead and the left wrist during prayer time. 
And this is done literally to follow the commands in this verse that we're looking at today. Similarly, the mezuzah um, is uh, their boxes, cylinders, or reeds that contain rolled up parchments of the verses from the, from the law, especially the Shema passages. And then they're attached to the right side of doorposts in a house or on a gatepost. Now, scientists have found that these have been uh, in common use for hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. And so while this would have been part of his experience as a Jew to, to see those things, he showed us that there was more to doing love than just following traditions and putting God's word in little boxes in our lives. We do that, don't we? We tend to like to put God in little boxes in our lives of one sort or another. This word about loving God in all these different ways, in everything we think or do, is something that has to permeate every aspect of our life, our thoughts, our actions, and our muchness. It's how we reflect back the love that God is showing to us. It's not something we can only do on Sundays or on our quiet times with God. Doing love is something we need to be thinking about, teaching our children about, and even reminding ourselves as we do our daily activities. You see, doing love can't be an afterthought. It has to be an always thought. So as we sing our closing song, let's consider the ways in which we can better love God through all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that, that you have loved us so much and you have shown us so much what love is. And Lord, help us to learn to walk with your Holy Spirit and, and to love you with all our heart and to love you in ways and love our neighbor in ways uh, that bring glory to you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name.